Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, uh, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Verse 27, Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. But the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Generous chances. Did you see it? Let's look a little bit closer. Verse 19. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. In our story, we have three key characters, and we've just been introduced to the first. A certain rich man. As was the case last week, I do not believe Jesus is criticizing the fact that the man was rich. He's not chastising him due to the large amount of monetary assets he had. We don't know how he got his wealth. He may have worked hard for it. Maybe he inherited it. Maybe he played the Washington lottery and won. We just don't know. Jesus simply describes the man as a certain rich man. What Jesus does do is go into depth about how this rich man's wealth was displayed. First, the rich man was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. These were the threads and these were the colors of the social elite. They were the colors and the cloths of royalty. In fact, we also see these types of clothes being specifically crafted for the chosen priests to serve in God's tabernacle. You see that in Exodus 28. This man, this certain rich man, shopped at the right stores. The stores where anybody who was anybody shopped. Secondly, our text tells us that this man lived each day in luxury. Some of your translations say this man feasted sumptuously every day. That's a great word. Say sumptuously with me. Sumptuously. Great word. I like it. If you were fluent in Greek, which I know only about half of you are, so I'll explain to the rest. If you were fluent in Greek, you would have recognized that 
this word or this phrase was very similar. A same word choice, the same phrase occurred not too much further back in Luke's Gospel. It was said during the feast and the joyous occasion that took place when the father welcomed the prodigal son back. Luke 15, 23, the father said, And kill the fatted calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. To celebrate is the same root word as found in verse 19. To feast sumptuously. Now for the the, the father in the prodigal son story, this type of celebration, it came along rarely. You know, maybe a few times in a lifetime. If you remember, it was quite the party throne, right? But look at our certain rich man in today's story. How often did he feast like this? Daily, right? Every day. Not just a few times in a lifetime. He lived like this, ate like this, celebrated like this every single day. Feasted sumptuously. It's the same word in Greek that means glutton. It's also the same word that means gourmet feeding on exotic and costly dishes. This man was filthy rich, and he lived it in his grub and in his garments. See the generous chances? Not yet. Back in the text, verse 19 through 21. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Jesus' story now takes this 180 degree turn. We've met a certain rich man and now we meet Lazarus. There's a different Lazarus than the one Jesus would raise in John's Gospel. We go from a man clothed in fine linens that's busy feasting to a man clothed in sores, hoping, begging for some scraps from the table. Nothing is mentioned as to what cloths Lazarus wore. It's just said that he was covered in sores and that he was hungry. Now I told you when we first met the rich man that Jesus was not criticizing his wealth. In the same way, in introducing Lazarus the way he did, Jesus is also not praising Lazarus' poorness. He's not elevating Lazarus to a higher place simply because he's poor and broken. All Jesus is doing is showing the severity of his condition, his physical condition, and his social condition. And that condition that Jesus paints Lazarus in is not a good one. Covered in sores, the text said. This means he's unclean. Now in the Old Testament, laws regulated how closely you could come to someone who's unclean. In the unclean, the outcast lived in a village outside the village with other outcasts. Their plights in life were not positive. And oftentimes, people covered in sores were seen as receiving God's divine punishment. Deuteronomy 28, verse 35 says, The Lord will cover your knees and legs with incurable boils. In fact, you will be covered from head to foot. Divine punishment. Maybe. Our text says Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table. Yes, he was laying there outside the gate, far away from the man's table. Lazarus was maybe hoping that someone would bring the occasional bit of morsel that dropped off the table out to him. 
I think he was also sitting there longing for the man's napkins. Because the rich back then, they didn't use napkins. They used bread. As they ate, as the juices dripped from the corners of their mouth and the grease from their fattened calf smothered their fingers, the rich would take bread and wipe their hands with it. And they'd wipe their faces clean. And the bread was their napkins. After meal, when the bread had finished its cleaning duties, they'd, they'd throw it to the ground for the dogs to come and eat. These bread napkins longing for, laying there hungry, longing for someone else's waste. Verse 21. Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, and the dogs would come and lick his open sores. If this were Mother's Day, we'd just pass right by that verse. This is Father's Day. We're going to talk about it. Show of hands, how many of you have ever had a dog lick your wounds? It's okay, this is a non-judgment place. Okay, good. There's got to be more than five of you. The rest of you are, you got to experience it. Maybe as a kid, you fell down and scraped your knee. Maybe as an adult, maybe Justin, Justin, <laughs> That was me, that was me. Maybe as an adult, you hit your thumb with a hammer and it drew blood. Okay? You remember this, don't you? You remember your family pet, your, your beloved dog. He caught the scent of blood and ever so gently and gingerly came over and he sniffed the wound. And then in this beautiful, caring way, the dog started licking your wound. Yeah, you, you're relating to this, aren't you? <laughs> If your mom saw this, if your wife saw this, they said, that's nasty. Don't let the dog do that. Your dog's mouths are dirty. But if your mom or wife didn't see it, you let the dog keep licking. And I bet you, you were amazed the next day at how much of an improvement your wound had. Right? Guys, right? Why was that? Because there is a medicinal quality to saliva. Dog saliva has been said by many cultures to have curative powers in people. I took French for a year in college, so let's see if I can pronounce this. Lingois de chambre, lingois de médecine. Sound good? It's a French saying that means a dog's tongue is a doctor's tongue. Now there's a Latin quote. Not even going to try and pronounce this one. That says a dog's tongue licking a wound heals it. Both these quotes appear in a 13th century manuscript. 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 It's been a long weekend. Saliva contains many compounds that are antibacterial and that promote healing. Whether mom liked it or not, when the family pet cleaned and cared for your wounds with his own saliva, guys, we felt loved, didn't we? We felt cared for. Justin did. What a beautiful picture then we see with, with the dogs coming to care for Lazarus. Right? At least that's how we read it. It's not how the original listeners would have read it. To them, dogs were not lap pets. They were not fun family members who were meant for loving and entertaining. Scripture never once paints a positive picture of dogs. Psalm 59, 14 and 15. My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but they go 
unsatisfied. Philippians 3, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Almost at the very end of Scripture, Revelation twenty-two fifteen, Scripture says, Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. This is not a pretty picture painted of dogs in Scripture. So the dogs mentioned in this story, these dogs were the town's ranging mongrels who roamed and scavenged the city in search of refuge in search of those napkins that were thrown off the table. These dogs have not come to lick Lazarus' wounds in a healing and caring way as we would like to think, but they came to abuse him further and to add one more reason for the listeners in this story to regard the man as less than human, unclean through and through as an outcast. Lazarus, poor, hungry, a social reject, Jesus' story really is painting a pathetic picture of him. Generous chances? Not yet. There's a certain rich man, and there's Lazarus. Then we get this great reversal. And Jesus had spoke of this great reversal in Luke 6, 24 and 25. Jesus said, What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now for a time of awful hunger awaits you. You look in today's text, verse 22 and 23. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried and his soul went to the place of the dead. His soul went to Hades. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Talk about turning the tables from riches to rags and rags to riches. All this somehow visible to both characters we've been introduced to thus far. Now, if we really wanted to, we could take a few rabbit trails here. We could talk about the characteristics of hell, the fire and torment, the ability to see heaven and people in heaven. We could wrestle with the notion of being by Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, as some of your translations read, and and talk about it as a place of purgatory until final judgment or or a place of, of rest before entering paradise. We could even mull over the notion of somehow being able to communicate between the two realms. We could do all that if we really wanted to. But I don't want to. Because I don't believe that's the point Jesus is making in this story. I think the point Jesus is making here has something to do with generous chances. And we're now in verse 24. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. What we have here is a man who even in the flames of hell, has not changed. He is still seeking to be served by someone he deems as less than him. Have some pity. Have some mercy on me, the man cries. Mercy. This was the one thing he did not offer when he was alive. And yet now it's the one thing he's asking for. To make things even worse, he calls Lazarus by name. 
He calls them by name. Now that means, back while they were still both alive, that this certain rich man knew, at least to some degree, he knew the beggar outside his gates. He knew him, but he never did a thing for him. And now he's requesting Lazarus to come and aid him. Lazarus, come run me an errand. I'm still showing no respect. I'm going to take that rabbit trail now. Now is as good a place as any in this message to share a very deep and profound fact that we normally may have missed. Lazarus, just called by name, by the certain rich man, he is the only person in any of Jesus' parables that has a name. The only one. Go home, look at that. You'll find that there is no other parable Jesus tells where a character is given a name. Now what's powerful in that is, is the role Lazarus plays in this parable. He doesn't ever say a thing. He's just this, this passive character. He's just part of the story. But as a broken, unclean, hungry, poor individual, the kind of outcast that Jesus was criticized for hanging out with, he has a name. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Lazarus, the name literally means, my God helps. He's been called by name. Back to our story. This certain rich man cries out for mercy. You know, the one thing he didn't give Lazarus when he was alive. So Abraham, the third character in our story, responds. Verse 25 and 26. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. Besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. This is a great reversal at its finest. And generous chances? Not yet. Not yet. In their time on earth, the rich man and Lazarus, they were separated. By what? A gate. Good, we're paying attention this morning. The gate literally kept them apart. This gate in front of the man's house, it could have been traversed. It could have been opened, but it never was. Now the gate has become a fixed divide. A chasm of the greatest proportions that cannot be traversed. It cannot be changed. And a gate at least in the Old Testament, was not, it was not where those in power were supposed to push those who were needy. God says through the prophet Amos, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and who turn aside the needy in the gate. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord, the God of heaven's armies, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate so that it may be that the Lord, the God of heaven's armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Lazarus had been pushed outside the gate. No justice was done. The needy had been turned away at the gate. And now in our story today, there is a chasm, a gate that can no longer be crossed. 
I don't see generous chances quite yet. Maybe it's in the next verse, verse 27. The rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least to send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Hey, if it's too late for me, at least go warn some of my family. Warn the rest of them, help them, show them some mercy. This may have been the first time this certain rich man had, had like, shown mercy to anybody or anything. May have been the first time he began thinking outside himself in a long time. Verse 29, but Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And a certain rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody from the dead is sent to them, then they will repent. Then they will turn from their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. And the story finishes. The, the next verse in chapter 17 is another time. This is the end of the story. Did you see the generous chances in there? Didn't look like Abraham gave any second chances, did it? So what's going on? You know, in our story, we are witnessing the finality of death. The reality that once you breathe your final breath here on this earth, you cannot get another chance. Even though after death, this certain rich man finally lifted his eyes to heaven. He finally began praying, if that's what you want to call the conversation between he and Abraham. He finally began begging for mercy and for him and his, and his family. For him, it was too late. There would be no more chances. Commentator William Barclay says, This certain rich man had looked on the world's suffering and need and felt no answering sword of grief and pity pierce his heart. He had looked on his fellow man hungry and in pain, and he did nothing about it. The certain rich man's sin was not that he was rich. It was that he did nothing. And now there was nothing for him when it came to generous chances. Verse 29, But Abraham said to this certain rich man, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. In verse 31, if, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Where are the generous chances? I told you the punchline at the beginning. I told you this was about generous chances, but where are they? I think this entire passage is about generous chances. You see, what we've just studied is called a parable. Most of you know that a parable is a story Jesus told using picture language to describe something that was going on in his work on earth or in God's work on earth. So what's going on in this? I mean, beginning in Luke 15, verse 1, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders are grumbling and complaining about who Jesus is hanging out with. The outcasts, the, the, the rejects. He tells three parables about the lost being a found. Those parables were, were addressed to the religious people who were complaining. And to this same audience, Jesus then shifts his focus to stories about money and people with a lot of it. We're going to look at the beginning of chapter 16 next week. But the, the, the Pharisees, they didn't like this shift. Chapter 16, verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and they scoffed at Jesus. After they scoffed, we look at the story that Jesus told today. This certain rich man neglecting the outcast. I think it would have been hard for those listening, the religious elite, not to put themselves in the story that Jesus told. 
Now, if they did, what character would they have been? Probably the rich man, right? And now Jesus is giving them, the people listening to him tell these stories, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those people who grew up in the church, he's giving them generous chances to respond. They have the writings of Moses. The writings of the prophets warning them. That's all over verse 29. And then Jesus gives them the punchline. Storyteller. He gives them the moral at the end of it. Verse 31. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. I mean, frankly, this group would have already seen or heard of one other person being raised from the dead. The widow's son at Nain. Had they stuck around Jesus at all, they would have later seen him raise Lazarus. Different Lazarus in this story, but John chapter 11. And then you get this huge bit of foreshadowing that Jesus was doing in the final sentence of his story. He says, if they won't listen to the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus said they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead wouldn't be too long before Jesus himself would hang on a cross and three days later raise from the dead. But would those people listen? This is Jesus giving generous chances. It's him giving generous chances to those listening to him, and it's him giving generous chances to us. How will we respond? Salvation is a free gift from Christ. It's free, no strings attached. But will our response to that, to that free gift, will it lead us to look for the man on the other side of the gate? Will that free gift of salvation drive a sword into our own souls for those covered in soul, sores, those cast out of society, those needing a scrap thrown from our own tables? Now what a picture of generous chances for us. Jesus tells the story giving those listening generous chances to get things right with God, as would be evidenced by their care for the poor. He gave them the chance not to end up like the rich man in the story. Today is once again a story of the rich, spiritually rich, and the outcast. And we know Jesus welcomes the outcast. Would the religious elite listen? Will we listen? I know that it may seem like I've been beating the same drum over and over for a long time. You know, the least of these, caring for those. And I was thinking about that this past week. Here's the conclusion that I came to. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now for a little over seven months. We've spent this time intentionally in here because we're trying to figure out this Christ. This Christ who we're trying to be disciples of and make disciples of. We want to know what his heart beats for. We want to know who his heart beats for. And I've got to think that since over the last seven months, many, many times coming up over and over again, these stories of, of helping the least of these, they come up. I've got to figure that is the heartbeat of Jesus. That's what he wakes up in the morning thinking about. And if that's the case, are we listening? I know. I know that there are many people in our body, in our church, who do very much help the outcast, who see a Lazarus and welcome him into their lives. They welcome him past the gate onto their own table. We have those people here. 
without naming names, I applaud you. Keep doing that. Now, I also know that for, it's going to look different for different people. Helping the outcast is going to look different for a young person who can go out on the streets and talk and serve food. And it's going to look different compared to someone who's later in years and is not near as mobile. Our response to the Lazaruses in our lives will be different. But Lord willing, our response will be something different than the certain rich man's response, which was nothing. These are the stories that Jesus keeps telling. What are we to do with them? My goal, you've heard, this, heard me say this many times before, is to order my entire life around Christ. And I want to help order your entire lives around Christ as well. If this Jesus looks like he does in the pages of the Gospel of Luke, the stories he tells, what does that mean for us? I think it means generous chances. God gives them. Jesus gives them through stories like the one we saw today. Yes, there's the gospel message. Let us cling to this man who was raised from the dead. Let us believe that with all our hearts. But let that also move us and affect us how we live and how we view life. Let us do that before it's too late. Generous chances. 